All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our time in God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, it's such a great privilege to take time to be refreshed, encouraged, strengthened, and challenged by your word, to be reminded of these eternal truths that should be embedded within our soul and should be uh, shaping our character, transforming our lives. Father, we recognize that as those who have been called to serve you in the body of Christ, that we have a mission, and that mission involves our testimony to the world around us, both a nonverbal testimony and a verbal testimony, talking to others about the gospel, helping them to understand the truth of Christianity, challenging them to believe in Jesus Christ, and also in the impact of our own character and decisions, decisions in the voting booth, decisions as how we work and how we conduct ourselves in our uh, professional and business life. Father, we pray that we might reflect your grace. Scripture says that we are to shine forth as lights, reflecting that light that that has changed our lives shining forth as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And, Father, we pray for this time, also for this election, for the impact of believers applying your word accurately to their voting, that we may sustain a government that seeks to stick to the Constitution, preserve our freedoms, and enable us to preach the gospel without government interference and to teach your word not only within a local church, but to apply its principles in the workplace, in the public square, without fear of government interference or business reprisals. And, Father, we pray for our courage that we may stand fast for the truth of your word in every area of life. And today, as we study your word, that we might be reminded of the goodness and the riches of your grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our study today is to continue in the salutation in Ephesians chapter 1. Last week, we just looked at the opening uh, couple of phrases, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, coming to understand the power of God's grace in the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul was born Saul of Tarsus. He characterized himself in his pre-Christian life as the chief of sinners. 
He was responsible as a Pharisee who sought the destruction of this new uh, Christian doctrine to destroy it. And as such, he was responsible for, responsible for the arrest and for the torture, for the incarceration, and for the death of untold numbers of Christians. He had been brought up in a devout Jewish home. Sometime in the past, his family had acquired Roman citizenship, so he had that unique privilege, which was part of God's sovereign plan for his life, for it uh, enabled him to do certain things later on in his ministry. When he was uh, young, sometime around his bar mitzvah, which was when he would turn 13, he moved to Jerusalem. He had a sister who was married and lived in Jerusalem and lived in that house, and he uh, studied under one of the greatest of the Pharisees at that time, uh, Gamaliel, and he was trained. He says of himself in Philippians 3 that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and according to zeal, there was no one to match him. He was a zealous, passionate uh, Pharisee who uh, sought the establishment of his religious convictions at whatever cost, including that of the destruction of Christianity. But when he was on a mission to arrest and to torture and to bring back to Jerusalem Christians in Damascus, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus and challenged him with the question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it was in that illumination, in that revelation that Paul understood the reality of the gospel and trusted in Jesus of Nazareth as the promised prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament. Up to that moment, any of us, if we had been trying to witness to Paul, would have thought that there was no way this man would ever become a Christian. You may have people like that in your life. I have people like that in my life. I have people that I have witnessed to for 10, 15, 20 30 years or more, and sometimes it has taken uh, over 30 years for them to come to uh, belief in Jesus. So we should never give up. We should never grow weary. But the point that I was making last week was that grace is transformative, that grace changes people, and Paul is a trophy of God's grace as we, as we all are. And so in the, in his salutation, where he begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, this statement is rich with God's grace. For in God's undeserved merit, Paul, who had persecuted the body of Christ, who had brought about the arrest and the death of numerous Christians, was transformed on the road to Damascus and was appointed at that time by God as a, an apostle to the Gentiles to carry the truth of the gospel to Jews, but especially to uh, Gentiles. And so as we began that study last time, we saw that as an apostle, he was brought into that elite group that had surrounded Jesus in his ministry on the earth, the 12 
the 12 disciples who became the 12 apostles, actually minus one because Judas was not a believer and Judas hung himself. And so I believe that according to Revelation 21, that the foundation of the New Jerusalem is the 12 apostles, that it is Paul who replaces uh, Judas as a member of that elite body, and that it is the Apostle Paul who's responsible for taking the gospel uh, to the Gentiles. And we saw that there are two categories of apostles uh, in the New Testament. There are those that are of the 12. They were commissioned by Christ to take the gospel to the world, to establish the foundation of the gospel, as we'll see when we get to Ephesians 2.20. The apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, and that's talking about New Testament prophets, not Old Testament prophets. They are the foundation of the church, and it's important to understand when the Scripture uses the term apostle to look at who commissions that person or who commissioned that person and to what were they commissioned? With the twelve, they are commissioned by Jesus Christ. They were witnesses of his resurrection, and they have a unique and distinct role in the body of Christ. There were others who are called apostle. This confuses people. Those who were leaders in the early church, like James, the uh, uh, brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, or half-brother of his humanity, There's James, there's Barnabas, there's a few others who are identified as apostles, but these were men that were commissioned by a local church to a specific task. And so they're identified as what we might call lowercase apostles. It was only the 12, based on Ephesians, that had the gift of apostleship, that spiritual gift that's identified in Ephesians 4, uh, 10 through 12. And so uh, Paul is one of those. Now, the next thing that he says about this is that his apostleship is by the will of God, as it's translated in the New uh, King James Version, or through the will of God. It is the Greek preposition dia plus a genitive of the word uh, thelema, which is the word for will. Now, the reason that's important is because when you take the word dia and you put it with an accusative case, it has a different sense. It has a sense of causation. And so when we get to a passage like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, it's dia there plus a genitive. It's not a cause. It's not because of faith. It's not your faith that causes your salvation. Faith is the means. So that's the same kind of grammar that you have here, indicating that it is the Father who is the ultimate uh, agent or means of, of giving Paul the gift of apostleship. So it is by, uh, by the will of God. The word will is a word that is used a number of times in Scripture, But in the New Testament, only 11 times does it refer to human desire or will. Uh, One time in 2 Timothy 2.26, it refers to the devil's will. But the other 
uh, occurrences refer to God's will. And so it's often translated just the will of God, but it emphasizes the fact that he has made a sovereign decision in eternity past. God has uh, set his plan in motion from before the creation, and so it should best be understood as by the decision of God. It is God's decision that Paul becomes an apostle. And what he's emphasizing is this isn't his decision. It isn't something he aspired to, something he wanted to, something that uh, he made for himself. And it is in the same way uh, not something that was the at the will of others. He really emphasizes this in his opening salutation in Galatians. Part of the problem that Paul ran into from the Galatians, from the Corinthians, from others, is that his credentials were attacked, his credentials as an apostle, because he wasn't one of that original group of the 11 that uh, were witnesses of Christ's ministry on the earth. And so in Galatia, he had been challenged. This is sort of south-central, what we call today Turkey, and it was the Roman province of Galatia, and the first uh, Christians or the first churches he established on his first missionary journey were in that area at places like uh, uh, Lystra and Iconium and Derby. And subsequent to his going to those places, he was followed by uh, what we call Judaizers. These were Jews who wanted to, as Paul had before he was saved, to destroy Christianity on the one hand. And they were also, some of them had become uh, nominal, that means Christians in name only, because they they didn't ex- have a true grace gospel. That's why Paul will uh, uh, rebuke the Galatians when you get down to uh, a few verses later, and he says, "There, if anyone comes with another gospel, that is a gospel of another kind, and their gospel was that you have to believe in Jesus, that's great, but you also have to continue to obey the Mosaic law. Well, part of the way in which they insinuated themselves into these new churches was to attack the credentials of the Apostle Paul. So he emphasizes this specifically at the beginning of Galatians, he says, Paul, an apostle, and then he says, not from men, nor through man, singular, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now, what's interesting here is he shifts prepositions, and he shifts from the plural of men, indicating a group of men, to a singular man, uh, and then he shifts to talking about that it was actually through Jesus Christ, who he states first, and then God the Father. So what he is saying here when he says not from men, plural, he's saying it's not from the source of a group of men. The other apostles didn't get together and appoint him. It wasn't a group of elders at Antioch that had appointed him 
as an apostle. He was appointed an apostle by Jesus Christ and God the Father. So it is not from a group of men that his apostleship derived. And then he says, not through man. Now, in the Greek, it doesn't have an article, and that can indicate something that's qualitative, or it can indicate just a, a generic concept of mankind that is a through a human channel. So he rejects completely this idea that his apostleship was at the hands of either an elite group of men or from any human agency. And then he states in contrast, but it was through Jesus Christ, and there he uses this same kind of construction that it indicates means it is through the means of Jesus Christ in his a direct appearance to Paul on the road to Damascus where Jesus directly commissions him to be an apostle and that ultimately it comes from God the Father who's the ultimate authority in the Trinity. Now, as we go into our main body of the first chapter in verses 3 down through 14, which uh, uh, contains a series of praises uh, to each member of the Trinity, then we're going to take some time to break down the doctrine of the Trinity and to understand uh, the authority structure and submission that is part of the inherent ontology or metaphysics or being of eternal God, that authority isn't something God created. It has been at the core of the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all of eternity. So, uh, ultimately, it is God the Father who has the authority to, behind the appointment of apostleship. In uh, Romans chapter 1, Paul identifies himself as an apostle, but he calls himself first a bondservant of Jesus. And this word would more accurately be translated as a slave. It's the Greek word doulos. It is more than just a servant. We think of a servant as someone who is hired and to carry out a, a set of domestic duties, but this is a slave in the Roman sense of the word, and he goes on to develop that concept that we are to be slaves of righteousness in Romans chapter 6, that we are born slaves of sin, and when we are redeemed, we are bought with a price and paid for. We are bought out of the slave market of sin, and now we are in Christ, and we are to be slaves of righteousness. So he says he is a slave of Jesus, Jesus Christ called an apostle. And so he is called an apostle, and actually the verb to be is not present in the text. You'll look at your Bibles, and it will be in italics, and that means that it is supplied by an English translator to make what he thinks is to make sense of the passage. But he, Paul isn't stating that. That, that. We'll run into that again as we go forward in our study of what it means to be a saint. It is called an apostle or someone who's identified as an apostle. When it says called to be, that, that in English indicates some sort of future potentiality. But he is called or identified an apostle by God. 
And then in another salutation in 1 Timothy, Paul expresses his commission as an apostle as a command from God, not just that he is a slave of God, not just that he has been appointed by Jesus Christ to carry out this mission, but this is a command. In 1 Timothy 1.1, he states, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notes he puts the priority in this passage on God, and he identifies God the Father also as the Savior because he is the author of the plan of salvation. And then in 1 Timothy 2.7, he expands on this just a little bit, and he says, for which, that is for the gospel, I was appointed a preacher. That's the word kerux. It means an, someone who is uh, announcing or proclaiming the gospel, usually with kerux as the noun or keruso, the verb. The object or the content of the proclamation relates to the gospel. Uh, we think of a preacher as someone who gives a motivational message, uh, gives a message of encouragement. Sometimes it can be expository. But biblically, the distinction is between someone who teaches the word and explains it and someone who proclaims the gospel or preaches the gospel. And so modern language does not reflect biblical usage. So he says he was appointed a preacher, a proclaimer of the gospel, and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Notice the emphasis there is on teaching, on explaining what the Scripture teaches. That is the primary role and function of a pastor-teacher as well. Now, Ephesians 1.1 goes on to say in the next, uh, in the next uh, phrase or the next clause, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, there's a couple of things we should note as we look at this particular clause. There are some problems. First of all, you have some textual problems, and I was putting myself to sleep several times yesterday reading extremely long discourses on uh, on all the details related to this, so I'm not going to put you to sleep with that this morning. But I do know that in some of your English Bibles, uh, especially if you have a Revised Standard Version, that the phrase in Ephesus is not present. It's left out. If you have... Um, most Bibles will put it there. Some might even in the translation put it in brackets. And so that is one textual variant. The other textual variant is that you will notice that in my, um, in the way I've put it up here in the New King James that came into, uh, that, that I looked at it has faithful in Christ Jesus. Christ then Jesus. However, in um, uh, in the New King James, I don't know how that. Maybe I took that from NASB, but in the in New American Standard, in uh, some other versions, it's Christ Jesus. But in the New King James, in the King James, it is Jesus Christ. First, it's Jesus, then Christ. 
And some of the issues are the same, but I think it should be, I I think the majority text is very clear uh, that the word order is Jesus Christ and that uh, that the word in Ephesus is clearly present. What's interesting is there's the oldest uh, papyri we have is P46. It has some problems. For example, in verse 3 of Ephesians 1, it deletes 10 words. And there are numerous other places in that uh, papyri, pa- papyrus that has uh, that is missing words and dropped out some things. So it's not the most reliable, even if it's the one, of, if, even if it's the oldest copy that we have. It apparently was a copy of a of a of a, a previous manuscript that had some some omissions and some problems. Most. Nearly every version has, in fact, P46 has as the heading of the epistle the title to the Ephesians, but then it leaves Ephesus out of the first verse. So that indicates that it was clearly understood that this was written to the Ephesians to uh, to begin with. And then for the same reason that P46 is not a reliable witness to the early form of the text, the same is true for the word order, and I don't think that that's that significant, um, that the word order that you have in New King James and King James, which is in the majority text, as well as a number of other manuscripts, indicates a word order of, of Jesus Christ. So that gets rid of understanding some distinctions you may see in some of the translations uh, that you have. This addresses the recipients of the epistle, this clause. It is addressed to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Jesus Christ. So there are basically three questions that we need to address. The first is, what is a saint? We have all kinds of meanings to the word saint, for some of you, you may think of a television show that came out in the uh, 50s or 60s, and then they made a movie out of it back in the 90s. Others of you think of it perhaps as a football team or someone who plays for that team. Uh, others of you, if you come from a Roman Catholic or Orthodox background, think of it as a certain category of Christian. So we need to define biblically what a saint is. Secondly, we need to ask, is this, does this refer to all of those believers in Ephesus or just those who are faithful? As he's talking about two classes of people, in other words, the saints and then those who are faithful. And that brings up the third question, which is, is the word faithful the best way to translate the Greek word here, which is the word pistos, ending with an O-S, which is not pistis, ending with an I-S, which is the word faith. So let's start by answering the question, what is a saint? Now, here's a definition. We'll look to the Brits first because, of course, it was Brits that translated the King James Version and uh, influenced many other versions. And so a saint is identified by the Oxford English Dictionary as a person acknowledged as holy or virtuous and regarded in Christian faith as being in heaven after death. 
uh, that's not real clear. The emphasis there is it's a certain kind of Christian who is especially virtuous, emphasis on their morality. And then it further states a person of exalted virtue who is canonized by the church, and by that they mean by the Roman Catholic Church, who is canonized by the church after death and who may be the object of veneration and prayers for intercession. Now, that is not the meaning of the biblical term saint. So if you go to an English dictionary to determine what the word meaning is for saint, you're going to be misled. I've pointed this out on a number of other uh, biblical terms. For the American usage, we have the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, which says in their first meaning, the first meaning is the one that is most, most common, second is the second most common, and so on. The first meaning is one officially recognized, especially through canonization, as preeminent for holiness. Again, this emphasis on personal virtue and morality. Second meaning is one of the spirits of the departed in heaven or an angel. Okay, so that, again, has nothing to do with the biblical usage of the term. The third meaning may come close, one of God's chosen and usually Christian people. And if it's uh, capitalized, then it's part of certain Christian bodies such as the Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as Mormons. And then the fourth meaning is one who is eminent for piety or virtue. So they pretty much miss the mark, so we have to take a look at what this word is and what it means. The word translated saints in the plural here is the noun hagias. We've studied this a lot in uh, recent months on Tuesday night in our study of worship. Uh, this whole word group is very important and has a lot of, of significance for us. The Bauerdanker Art and Gingrich Dictionary, which is your primary Greek lexicon, states, it is pertinent to being dedicated or consecrated to the service of God, a sanctified person, someone set aside for a divine purpose. Okay, now that hits the nail on the head. Notice nothing in there indicates their vir personal virtue, piety, or morality, simply related to something or someone that has been dedicated to God's service or something that has been consecrated to the service of God. Now, we've studied this a lot in terms of the Old Testament. It's based on the Hebrew word. The verb is kadash. The noun is kadosh. And it is, uh, has the same basic meaning as something that is set apart for the use of a deity. It doesn't have anything to do with the inherent virtue or piety of something. So, so in the Old Testament, it talks about certain objects that become sanctified at, for use in the tabernacle or the temple. Now, a bowl or a pitcher or a candlestick does not have inherent virtue. They are amoral. They have neither morality nor immorality. They are. They have no no inherent uh, virtue. They're just simply set apart and distinct for the service of God. Therefore, thus, as we studied this last Tuesday night, everything within the tabernacle was holy. It was set apart to the service of God, and it was distinct. The opposite of holy is not unrighteous or sinful. 
The opposite of holy is common or profane, that which is for everyday use. So, for example, you go into an Orthodox Jewish home, you will find that there are certain dishes that are set aside. That's the concept of being holy set aside for the purpose of of, uh, of, of God. And you have certain dishes for that are used for Sabbath. You have certain dishes that are used uh, for Passover, for uh, holy days, and they are not for everyday use. And so that's that's the idea, the distinction between holy and profane. So the main idea of a saint is a person who's set apart to the service of God. Also in the Old Testament, the, there is a noun form of kadosh that is used to apply to priests, but it was pl- applied not only to the priests of God, but also to the pagan priests who were serving the the uh, various idols that were worshipped in Israel, and some of them involved, they were basically uh, religious prostitutes. And so there's no way that the word can, impl- can have as part of its core meaning the idea of personal virtue when it applies to religious prostitutes as well. It's simply the idea that they too are set aside for the purpose of serving their God. So this is the basic idea that we have uh, in in the word uh, hagias. But you also have a form of this word, hagiazo, which we normally translate as sanctified, and that is just a verb form of hagias, and it means to be set apart. And we get an explanation from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, showing how this relates to understanding the word saint. Paul writes to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now, we all know that the church of God was, I mean, the church in Corinth was just the poster child of virtue, right? little sanctified sarcasm. I mean, they they were one of the most carnal, one of the most arrogant uh, congregations of Christians in the ancient world. There was no sin that they weren't proud of. And so... Uh, they are still called saints. So Paul addresses his epistle to them, to those in the church, meaning all of them, who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. They are all set apart in Christ Jesus. And then the text actually just says called saints. You will look in your translations, and sometimes it will say um, uh called to be saints, and that indicates something in the future in English, but the to be is not present there. They are called or identified as saints. So the term saint as a noun simply reflects the verb usage to be set apart uh, to the service of God. In Romans 1.7, Paul has the same kind of language. He says to all who are in Rome, that's ex- inclusive of all believers, beloved of God, called, and again you see, and I've got it italicized in this verse on the screen, called saints, not called to be saints. So just draw a line through the to be in your, in your uh, Bible. Now, we have to understand what this means because it relates to a very critical concept that we will be looking at throughout our study of Ephesians, and that is the concept 
of sanctification. And these words are used with different senses, three different senses, in fact, in the uh, New Testament. And we identify these as phase one, phase two, and phase three. All are related to salvation. Uh, the first phase occurs at the instant we understand the gospel and believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. At that instant, in that nanosecond that God the Father knows in his omniscience that you have believed the gospel, you don't have to pray it out loud, you don't have to tell somebody that it's an act of your of the intellectual process of your of your mind, and you believe the gospel, you say to, in, to yourself, that's true, you're convinced it's true. At that instant, there's a number of things that happen to you that are not experiential. One of the things that happens to you is that you receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's called imputation. God imputes to every believer at the instant of faith in Christ the righteousness of Christ so that we are declared righteous not because of something internal to us but because we possess the righteousness of Christ. This is what is known uh, classically as the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so at that instant, we are justified. Simultaneously, we are regenerated. We're born again. We are given new life in Christ. We move from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. A number of other things that we'll look at in a minute also take place at that time. We are said at that point to be saved from the penalty of sin. That is eternal condemnation, eternal uh, an eternal destiny in the lake of fire. We are saved from the penalty of sin. So when we talk about being saved, we have to understand what we're being saved from. If it's phase one, we're being saved from the penalty of sin, and it's by faith alone in Christ alone, understanding that he died on the cross for our sins. That is birth. Birth is separated from life, okay? Birth is the beginning of life, but, but, but justification is not the same as experiential sanctification. It is what we call, though, positional sanctification. This is, we might also call this objective sanctification. We are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and so we are positionally set apart to the service of God because now we are adopted into God's royal family. We're justified, we're regenerated, and we are adopted into God's royal family, and we are placed in Christ. We'll look at this in just a minute. That means we are positionally sanctified, but it doesn't mean our sin nature is gone, and it doesn't mean we're any more moral or virtuous than we were uh, five minutes earlier when we were uh, sinners and unregenerate and under condemnation of eternal death. Justification does not mean we will automatically grow as believers. That comes in from a Calvinist doctrine called the perseverance of the saints, that anyone who is truly believed will inevitably grow spiritually in this life. They may have periods of disobedience and carnality, but inevitably they will grow. They have merged uh, 
experiential sanctification with justification. The same thing happens more so in Roman Catholic theology because in Roman Catholic theology, justification isn't what happens in a moment in time. It is, it is, uh, it is identi- identical with experiential sanctification. So the only way you're justified is if you, uh, if you, your virtue is enhanced spiritually over time at the same time um, that you are going to church and through all of the sacraments you eventually uh, reach a stage where you are said to be saved, but they can't identify when that would be. So in this view, in our view, in the biblical view, you're, at the moment you trust in Christ, you're positionally sanctified, you're set apart for the service of God, and you're saved from the penalty of sin. The next issue is what are you going to do with this new life? Are you going to feed it and nourish it and let it grow and mature, or are you going to let it just uh, sort of die out and shrivel up? You won't lose your salvation, but it is will not be nourished and will not grow. This is what we refer to as the spiritual life, growing in the spiritual life, growing by the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it is progressive. It takes our whole life. It doesn't just happen in one shot. You can't walk an aisle or raise your hand and dedicate your life in one event. It is a day-to-day, moment-by-moment decision to grow in our spiritual life. And so it is progressive, and it's referred to as progressive sanctification or experiential sanctification. And it means that we are saved from the uh, power of sin more and more each day as we choose to live for the Lord and not to feed our sin nature. And then when we die physically and we're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord, then we are glorified and we are saved from the presence of sin. There's no more sin nature. There's no more sorrow, no more tears. All these things are passed away, and we are uh, glorified. Now, the Bible uses the word sanctify to refer to, as I pointed out in um, 1 Corinthians uh, 1-2, to our position, our objective position in Christ, that we are sanctified from the moment we are saved. But it also re- uses it to refer to experiential sanctification or experiential holiness. Holiness, as I keep pointing out, is one of those words that people are unsure about because we all have picked up this cultural understanding that it means personal piety or virtue. But when we understand it correctly, it is the experience of of spiritual growth where we realize that we should be more and more set apart to the service of God from day to day, week to week, and month to month, and year to year. It's used, the word holiness, hagios, is used to refer to this spiritual growth in places like Romans 12, 1, where Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy. See, this is an ongoing thing, set apart to God, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So holiness, experiential holiness or sanctification represents our ongoing and maturing service to God. In Ephesians 1, 4, we will see this used again. Just as he, God the Father, chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. That is his purpose, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. This is talking about our experiential growth and application of the word. Colossians 1.22 says, In the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless. It's an echo of the same statement in Ephesians 1. For Ephesians and Colossians were written very close to one another and have a lot of uh, parallels and similarities. In 1 Peter 1.15 and 16, which I talked about on Tuesday night, we're told in the New Testament, as he who called you is holy, as God is unique and distinct among uh, and different from all of his creation, as he is unique and distinct, you also be unique and distinct in all of your conduct. Don't live your lives like the pagans. Don't live your lives like uh, the people around you who either do not know the gospel or do not know anything about biblical truth. Because it is written, quoting from the Old Testament, be holy for I am holy. So there we see that this Old Testament command is transferred to the New Testament and also is mandated of every church-age believer. Be holy for I am holy is not some legalistic piety. It simply means as God is set apart and distinct, so we, our lives are to be set apart and distinct in the service of him. Now let me use one other diagram familiar to many of you, and that is that at the cross, we trust in Christ as Savior. Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There are two aspects of this that we must understand. Many people get confused on this, and they confuse these two aspects, and that's how they get into a lot of legalism. They confuse the eternal realities of our objective position in Christ with temporal realities. And this leads many, one, one of the damaging things, it leads many to, uh, to believe that they can lose their salvation. So at the instant that we trust in Christ, we are become children of light, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. We are baptized by God the Holy Spirit, and we are placed in Christ, a distinctive term we'll study more as we go through Ephesians, and it's important to understand in Ephesians. As part of that objective reality in our position in Christ, we are reconciled, we are redeemed, we've been bought with a price, we've been regenerated, we have a new life, a spiritual life, we've been born again, we are adopted into God's royal family, we become a new creation in Christ. All things are new. Old things are passed away. We are freed from the dominion and tyranny of the sin nature. Uh, we have a new life, a spiritual life. We must nourish and it must grow. We are sealed by God the Holy Spirit, which we'll study when we get down to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Uh, permanently. We cannot lose that indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All of that is part of who we are, our identity in Christ. But experientially, sometimes we fall for far short of those realities. We are 
initially filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. He not only indwells us, but he is empowering us spiritually. But as soon as we sin, that gets uh, gets broken off until we recover. It is also identified by the phrase walking by the Spirit, indicating a moment-by-moment progress. This is part of and is related to our progressive sanctification. But when we sin and the sin nature takes over, then we are uh, out of fellowship and we are walking in darkness where where children is light. This is what Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5, 7. You're children of light. Walk as children of light. In other words, you're probably not walking as children of light. You can walk as children of darkness, so you need to stop walking as children of darkness and walk as children of light. And so... Um, we confess sin and we are restored to that place where we can enjoy our fellowship with God. We can worship him. We can walk by the spirit, walk in the light and abide in Christ. So this is what it means to be a saint, a sanctified one, someone who is set apart to the service of God. And that relates to our positional identity in Christ. But then the next phrase says that we are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, this is really a translation problem and is one that is uh, unfortunate because every translation I checked and then I was reading in another, uh, in a commentary said that every translation translates pistos here as faithful. And the problem is, is that faithful relates to our object, our, our uh, experience, our subjective experience in walking with the Lord. Lordship salvation is a view of the gospel that confuses justification with sanctification. And so this would be in line with a lordship view that uh, Paul is not writing uh, that Paul is writing to saints because all saints are those who are faithful. And so, again, this is a confusion. confusing. The word pistos has an active meaning and a passive meaning, a passive sense. The passive sense is when you're being faithful, you're be, you are trustworthy. It uh, would be seen in a passage such as 1 Corinthians 4.2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But it also refers to someone who believes or trusts in some something or someone else. And this is referred to as the state of believing. And so that is the idea that we have here. It should not be translated faithful in Christ Jesus, but it should be translated believer in Christ Jesus. Not, it's not emphasizing the passive sense of reliable or trustworthy, but the active sense of being a believer in Christ Jesus. Here are some examples of how that is used. And 2 Corinthians 6.15 is the clearest. Paul says, what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And there he is using pistos. A believer is pistos. An unbeliever is apistos. The A is equivalent to the English un. So a pistos is a believer. An unbeliever is apistos. 
Uh, Acts 10.45, those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. It's a participial form of pistos. Um, Galatians 3.9, believing Abraham's pistos. So all of these passages emphasize being believers. So it should be translated to the saints who are in Ephesus. And the, the and there is what's technically called an ascensive uh, chi. Well, it just means it's, it's, it's should be translated that is or namely. It's identifying this second uh, noun with the first one, namely believers in Jesus Christ. Even Calvin said all saints are believers and all believers are saints. Okay, it's very clear that's the meaning here. So they are faithful. Now, the next thing that we find that's a bit of a problem, uh, and it, it doesn't really change any theology or affect it, but one view is that, that the believers, when it's understood correctly, I think it clears it up. Um, the first view is that in Christ Jesus applies to both saints and, uh, and pistos, the believers, that the saints are in Christ Jesus and believers are in Christ Jesus. And, of course, the, of course, the phrase in Christ is critical in all of Ephesians. But the problem with this is that, that when faithful is, pistos is understood to be a believer, it makes more sense to understand that last phrase as expressing the object of faith. That you have, uh, and besides, it, the Greek grammar, the Greek structure is is just convoluted, because this fr- if this phrase goes back to the word saints, then you have a lot of other words in between that make it very difficult to automatically make that connection. It is better to understand this as uh, expressing the object of of the belief. They are believers in Christ. Jesus, and so that clarifies that. Now, then we come to the second verse, and this is rather simple to understand. Paul, Paul does something remarkable here. I remember hearing a Bible teacher when I was in high school saying, "Well, in the Greek culture, they used a form of the word charis. They usually use karain or some other form to express." A greeting. So if you were a Greek and you were writing a letter or you were saying hello to somebody, you would use the word karain, meaning grace. And then if you were Jewish and you would greet somebody, you would say shalom. So since Paul is writing to Jews and Greeks, he just uses the Greek form and the Jewish form and puts that together. In other words, this person was saying there's no theological significance. Now, I have a problem with that because I believe that everything that is done in Scripture is under the inspiration of God and is spiritually significant unless you can find a really clear reason for dismissing that within the text. Paul doesn't use the normal uh, form in the greeting. He doesn't use the form uh, karain or kyre or kyrete. He uses, uh, instead, he uses... Uh, 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 kairos and charis, and this emphasizes grace, which is a major theme in Ephesians, but in all of his epistles. And what he is saying is that that he wants the recipients of the letter to fully experience either the grace of God at salvation or the grace of God in their spiritual life and their spiritual growth. 
The second thing that he's going to, he says, and he adopts this from a Jewish background, he says, peace from God, and the Jewish greeting is shalom, which means peace. And But here he identifies it as not just generic peace, but peace from God. This is a God-given peace that is ours at the instant of salvation. He, he says it's we, he's giving a blessing, as it were, in this salutation. May you experience grace and the peace that comes only from God. These are two themes we will come back to again and again in our study of Ephesians. For example, in Ephesians 2.89 we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul is the premier apostle of grace and explaining grace, and he emphasizes that it is by grace that we are saved through faith alone. And then a little later he talks about Christ as our peace, for he himself, talking about the cross, that that broke down the barrier between Jew and Gentile and the barrier between God and man, that Christ is our peace who has made both one, that is Jew and Gentile in the new body of Christ, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished it in the flesh, the having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Peace is tied in 2 Corinthians 5 to reconciliation. This is the message of the gospel. We are ambassadors of Christ proclaiming reconciliation. And then peace is identified strongly by Paul in his closing benediction of Romans 15:13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace by believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Our Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word, to reflect upon your grace and your goodness. Your grace transformed the Apostle Paul from the chief of sinners to the Apostle of grace, and your grace is still evident in our lives, transforming us from spiritually dead sinners to those who are spiritually alive, transforming and changing us from the inside out, changing us and conforming us to the image of your Son. And Father, we rejoice in the fact that we can learn so much more about your grace and that as a result of our trust in you, that this barrier has been broken down and we have peace with you. We are reconciled to you, and we can walk in harmony and fellowship with you. Father, we pray for those who are listening who may not understand how to have an eternal relationship with you, how to have eternal life, and we pray that it would be clear that it is from grace, from your undeserved kindness, your unmerited favor, that you have done everything through Christ on the cross that we don't do anything, we bring nothing to salvation except trusting in you for eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, we pray that you would challenge all of us, that we are to walk a life that is worthy of our calling, a life that is set apart to you in service to you, 
challenging us to grow spiritually and to make this the highest priority in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.